Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring magical light and spiritual darkness. My guest is my old friend James Tunney. He's in Gothenburg, Sweden, one of our most popular guests. He is a barrister who has lectured throughout the world on international law. His newest book is called The Mystery of Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. He is also the author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. In addition, he has written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland. I don't recognize who she is. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a real pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, it's a shame I'm not in Albuquerque. You had a great time when I was there. You, you taught of everything even shampoo and uh, this is a bit like this is a bit like star trek so you'll have to pay that picard and i could be the irish guy chief o'brien he's, <laughs> he's from my road in dublin <laughs> well you haven't lost your sense of humor um but you you've written a wonderful book the mystery of trapped light it's it's been a topic that i've uh, had an appreciation for ever since i first started to study kabbalah many many decades ago where they talk about trapped light in in the kabbalistic tradition and how important it is i think for the kabbalist to find ways of releasing the trapped light uh, yes, uh, if we look, coming from a perennial perspective, my view is that the idea of the trapping of light in flesh is, and the idea of the trapping of the spirit in flesh, is the central idea underlying most spiritual traditions. And of course, in certain spiritual traditions, the idea was specifically highly developed. And of course, we'd have to point to Kabbalah because light and the trapping of light is an essential central theme in all or most strands of Kabbalah, because of course there are different streams within Kabbalah, as you, you know better than I. And it's, it's not just in Kabbalah, we see it in, in Islam, in Sufism, in schools of uh, Illuminationism, in Christianity, in all forms of Christianity, in, 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 in all the different denominations. Uh, we see the idea of trapped light. We see it in the East, in Buddhism, uh, in Taoism. So it's a universal idea. So uh, certainly Kabbalah was developed a specifically uh, elevated doctrine and a very various complex doctrines to explain it and to negotiate and deal with the phenomenon. But my argument is that that was a highly specialized and elevated form of development of a perennial idea, which is inherent in the universe, it's inherent in us, and that therefore we must look to these traditions. And I can't, I can't lecture people on Kabbalah, I've no intention of doing so, 
But I think it's important that we build bridges so that people that know about these things have a proper platform on which to integrate into a wider context. So uh, certainly Kabbalah was, uh, has particularly developed the, the idea, yes. At the same time, there is a paradox involved that you highlight, which I think has to do with the nature of the feminine and, and the, the relationship between mother and matter. And if our light is trapped in matter, it's sort of a denigration of, of matter itself and it seems to be related to a, a kind of misogynistic theme that runs through many uh, religious and even spiritual traditions. That's true. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, but it is certainly true. And we've, we've talked before about the way the goddess has been buried in various traditions. Uh, and if we look at the idea of consciousness or divine consciousness, it's in the mystical traditions, it often seems to be fe feminine. And if we think of the Shekinah in the, in the uh, Kabbalistic context or in the Jewish context, and in other forms, we see uh, suggestions that the consciousness is feminine and that the divine, divine consciousness seems to be feminine. So in a way, it is true that certain feminist theologians don't like this idea of the trapping of light uh, because it, it, it does in, in some way uh, denigrate the idea of the earth. And therefore, if we look at indigenous cultures who talk about Mother Earth, and not just in, in the uh, America or Australia, but also in Europe, we might argue successfully that the Mother Earth, the matter, uh, is seen to be lesser. And, uh, but, but the counter-argument is that if you look back sufficiently, you'll see that the idea of light uh, was spread out in, in Earth. So all natural substances had lumen in it, lumen naturae, uh, and it's a mistake uh, to regard it as an inher a fundamental problem in that sense. And I think that a lot of these issues actually go back to the Reformation and the uh, effort to, as the church split, it cast aside some doctrines that were, that were very useful or that were, were a lot wider. If we go back to the earlier church, for example, the, if we look back, if we take the 9th century philosopher John Scotus Erugena, who came from Ireland, he was, he was probably one of the most famous philosophers of, that, of the 9th century, and he was very influential. His, his writings have influenced people uh, like Hegel, for example, a long time afterwards. And he was reflecting a very older tradition. And he, he translated from Greek Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, who was a, uh, who, who a Neoplatonist. And they, again, have the idea of light descending. But it's clear to, when you look at his writings in the 9th century, that you had the religious text, the book, but you also had the book of nature. So he came from a tradition in the Celtic church, which accepted and integrated and celebrated the pre-existing pre respect for the earth and for the goddess and for the, the feminine, in my view. And somewhere later, that was taken out. And certainly there is a problem if it's seen in that context. And as well, if we look at Gnosticism, 
we see that there's a, a kind of hatred for the body. We can see this. I know the Qatars are celebrated in many ways, and uh, uh, they had a very, very interesting uh, history, very, very interesting ideas, and a horrible demise by not just the church, but also the, the, the state authorities at the time, the, the various nobility. There was a number of different reasons. But they, they, they had a, uh, they were treated incredibly badly, and it's a historic wrong uh, against them. But their views against the, the flesh are inconsistent with, with other traditions. So, it, it, as I suggest in relation to Illuminationism, it shouldn't end up in being in, in a, or leading to a detestation of flesh or the body. And if it does so, it's imbalanced. And it's probably wrong in relation to the traditional doctrines and ideas of embedded light and what they meant. And in a way, when we look at ideas of uh, panpsychism and all these ideas, there's an effort to reclaim that philosophically in some sense. So, yes, that is an inherent flaw. And yes, that issue of the, the feminine and the idea that, that nature is, is in some way uh, bad must be considered. But I, I would caution that actually if we look at the tradition in religion, in the traditional religions that are often criticized, that hatred is not there in the same way that the scientific, uh, the scientific agenda, if you like, claims. And really, science is very good at denying its role in this attack on matter and in this attack on the, the, the Mother Earth and placing all responsibility on theologians that didn't ask, uh, share the view that science has. Well, in your wonderful book, you refer to light from many different perspectives. You, you talk about magical light, spiritual light, astral light, and physical light, and uh, the interplay of all of these uh, different ways in which we view not only light, but also darkness. I started off looking with a blank canvas, and, and I, I looked first at how I, I describe light, and I, I, I classified it in five categories. That there was external light, uh, which was visible, internal light, which was visible, internal light, uh, which was invisible, and external light, which is invisible, and combined sense of those. So, again, this is consistent with the way that Goethe or someone would have looked at light as it affects us as subjects. So we, we see the sun, which is an external visible light source, but we also have internal visible light, for example, with phosphenes and, and uh, visual experiences of light in the brain when we close our eyes. And a lot of mystical experiences happen with light when the eyes are closed. So they're not external, they're internal in some way. And then we have, of course, the light that we don't see, which is beyond the vis visible uh, visible field in the spectrum, which we can perceive or not perceive. So we have again, uh, we have external and internal sources. Of course, at some stage, it 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 may become internal. But uh, and then we have combined ideas of light. For example, if you read some of the UFO experiences, we might argue that, especially within an encounter with an alien source, for example, uh, that all these different forms of light must be considered. So that's the physical light. But in the spiritual tradition, physical light was the bottom rung of the ladder. So 
the physical manifestation is not the end as it is for scientists. So uh, we must consider on top of that the idea of spiritual light. And I've also talked about spiritual light phenomenon because my belief is that there is something which we should call spiritual light phenomena. So, for example, we have loads of examples of people experiencing light and the light has a profound psychological and spiritual effect upon them. And we can think of loads of examples. For example, Philip K. Dick gets the pink beam of light which came on the fish on the delivery uh, woman's uh, necklace and that changed his life. He wrote millions of words about that one beam of light that affected him profoundly. He believed he got a download in that context. The same thing happened to Jacob Burma. A, a stream of light on a pewter dish changed his life and changed the life of other people. So I, I call those spiritual light phenomenon where there's a mystical experience involved in it. And spiritual light for me is consistent with the spirit. So I argue that what scientists are looking for but have not found is the spirit and spiritual consciousness is the light within us. And that exists, that idea exists in all traditions. If we look at Christianity, Jesus is light, the way, the truth, life, uh, etc. Jesus is light, God is light. It's there in the Islamic tradition. Allah is light. It's there in the Jewish tradition, God, light. It's there in Buddhist tradition, light, the clear light, the pure land. It's there in all the traditions that we come from a divine source and that we are light. And that in some ways, uh, an explanation is that there's a circularity of light that we must engage in and we must return to our, to, to our uh, original source. Uh, and then I, I, I describe magical light where light is used to overwhelm the senses to create a kind of substitute for spiritual light which may be confused with spiritual light and may induce altered states of consciousness but not be the same thing. Again, magic may lead one direction in a positive direction or in a negative direction. It depends. But if we compare, for example, a hypnotist that may use light to induce a state to facilitate a beneficial state for the patient or the, the person in, in therapy, for example, that might be seen to be a positive use of magical light. But I'd contrast that with situations like the Nazis, for example, in the Nuremberg rallies from 34 to 38, uh, Albert Speer concocted this Lichtdom, which was the Cathedral of Light. And visitors from Britain and elsewhere that attended the Nuremberg rallies said that the most impressive thing about them uh, was this Cathedral of Light. So they got all the searchlights they had and they, they shone them up to the heavens. And they were, they were actually short of searchlights at the time. They wanted to show how many they had. And I don't think the stadium was finished. So they cleverly used them to create these beams of light that we can see in the films by Reef and Style, etc. Now, the, the intention of that was to utilize the light to overwhelm the senses, to enable a message to be put into the subconscious and conscious of the individuals. So that would be an example of magical light in a negative sense and i would i would argue that if you look at the super bowl for example most television i don't i don't we don't have a television here here so we're saved a lot of this but i see that a lot of a lot of these shows the super bowl mid thing etc eurovision song contest 
it's all lights, it's all this, and, and we're not actually constructed to be able to deal with that. We can be very vulnerable uh, if we have this overwhelming impact of light upon us. And then I, I, I also mention divine light, and this is a, this is a, a fundamental idea again in all the traditions. And in particular, there's an idea of Egyptian light, which which is one of the sources. But again, it's not limited to that. But we see the idea of divine light in all the major religions and spiritual traditions. And the idea that uh, it, it underpins all the uh, religions. But there's a mistake to believe that it comes from there or that it's spread from one to another. If you look at, there's an there's a independent scholar called Nicholson who has written about the shamanic tradition and the idea of light. Now he's looking at it from a medical perspective, but he argues very convincingly that the shaman engages in an induction of a light vision, or uh, uh, which is physiologically available to us all. And they're important in societies which haven't developed uh, in, into a very complex forms. But the same principles come up through all the, through all the different uh, religions, that these experiences of light internally uh, are uh, convincing to the, the practitioners about the existence of a higher form of light. So the divine light is higher than visible light. And it's important when we, when we look at science to consider that even if they find the great, all the answers about how light works and they, they, they have the ultimate answer about how light works, it will still not be what mystics claim it is. So in some ways, uh, the, the sun and uh, how we see light, or if we look back to the Greek philosophers, to Plato and Socrates, the sun and, and that were representing a higher form, an ideal form, and that's consistent with what the mystics say, that this is a physical representation which is not the real thing. So it's behind the, and so, so, so yes, there's, there's a range, and I think it's important because when I was trying to, when we were talking about magic and mysticism, I've been thinking more about the division between them and, and to what extent we can make a delineation or that's helpful when people, uh, when people are talking about them. Uh, and I think it's important in relation to light to uh, not confuse them. And in particular, scientists look at all these ideas, of, uh, these ideas of light, and they're quite dismissive because they say, oh, they don't understand what light is. They don't understand that light is, we know all about light and light is this, they're, they're, they're just ill-informed. But, but that's, not, that's not true. And in fact, if we look at the origins of the scientific understanding of light, we see that it all came from religious-inspired sources. And we can, we can see that in particular if we look at uh, the 12th century uh, Bishop uh, Gross Test in, in England. And he developed a complex, if you like, epistemology, ontology idea of, of light, which explained the whole idea of light. But in particular, they focused on the physicality and the physical nature of light too. So optics and uh, Roger Bacon and uh, in the Arab world, Again, this, this link was there, that the people who are studying light were not studying it for a scientific idea to understand how it worked. They were, they were studying it because they believed that it was a reflection of the divine form. And so scientists come along, they take the credit for all the work that's done 
in this domain beforehand and then they dismiss the history of science and, and they claim the credit and they claim that it wouldn't have happened without them. But optics, the ideas of vision, the study of vision, it was usually driven by people who are, had a divine, uh, an interest in divine sources. And we can see this in relation to, I think, parapsychology as well. People who are interested, scientists interested in parapsychology are often interested in vision and they're often interested in vision in a deeper sense and not just beyond how light bounces off the retina, but the other dimensions that perhaps the ideas such as the idea of invisible light and what that is. And I would, I would differ from people like Nicholson, the, the chap I mentioned, uh, by, I, would, I would not reduce it to an idea of photons in the body and biophotons and, and the trion and say, well, all this mystical experience therefore comes from from these light experience and it's just an illusion and hallucination my argument is that in both cases in spirituality and in science that there is a pathway and the pathway is signaled by light experiences because if you look at the history of science most of it is about the study of light when we come to einstein and the double split experiment and and quantum field it's all an elaboration about the nature of light and will continue to, to do so. And it was great to hear your, your talks with uh, Bernard Carr, which I think are, are very, very important. And I think I'd like to see scientists like him being bolder about their interest in where spirituality fits in. Because in my view, the scientific field has lost it in the sense that it has taken consciousness out. Now, whatever models you come up and explain to me about how the universe works and great mathematical models and great theories, they are still lesser than what human consciousness is, what spiritual consciousness is, what the human spirit is. So for me, the human spirit is primary. All these things are, uh, are secondary. And in some sense, I... I, I uh, cheekily argue that uh, science and the scientific study of light is for people that are slow learning, slow learning in the, in the spiritual domain. I reminded of a story that sort of bridges the two worlds of science and spirit. It has to do with the death of the um, musician, George Harrison, who his goal in life was to die consciously. And uh, his wife, Olivia, who was at his deathbed, reported that uh, when he died, the room was full of light. I think she meant spiritual light, but she said it was so tangible that if you had been there with a camera, you could have photographed it. This is an interesting phenomenon. And of course, the Beatles did the inner light and they sung that song, which is, refers to a, the same tradition. But uh, Dr. Peter Fenwick, uh, Fenwick, who is a member of the Galileo Commission as well, so I, I've seen him on some of the Zoom conferences, uh, he has talked a lot about uh, the dying process and he has looked at it from the perspective of a neuropsychiatrist a neuroscientist and he has identified certain phenomena that recur now i know these things from irish tradition for example irish people knew how to die and i don't mean that just in the political sense uh, but uh, in, in the uh, from the historical perspective but 
I remember when I was small, they still had the, and they, they do have them in Ireland still, the wakes and the house. And the wake was the biggest, was the biggest expenditure that any family would have, bigger than a wedding. So they liked the wake, so the body would be laid out in the room and the people would come and they say, oh, that's poor, t- terrible, wasn't he a great guy? And then they would drink and make merry and have a lot of uh, whiskey and have a party and celebrate the life of the person. But they were also, they, they were close to the person and it's, it reminds me a bit more of the, the idea of the Tibetan uh, book of uh, on, on death and, and dying and how you move to the, to the next life. And we have forgotten how to die, uh, and we've got forgotten that that's a process. So I, I have that in my in my description of the pattern of illumination as the fifth illumination. Because if we look at death, there are a number of experiences, and if we talk to people, or nurses, for example, who have been working hospices, they will attest to these things that there are that that there are a number of well recognised phenomena associated with death, which are associated with light. The the room may light up lights may behave in particular ways a light can be seen which is not a normal light light can be seen to emerge from the body Uh, the person who is dying is more than likely going to see light beings come to them Uh, they may of course in the near-death experience be moving towards the tunnel but there are certain phenomena such as people that you know or visitors or helpers who come back now these are in many ways reassuring things they indicate the idea that there is something beyond and it's been attested through to all cultures but since the enlightenment and reformation the effort to take the spirit out it doesn't want to tolerate these ideas so it makes it difficult for people but if people look at the evidence it's quite reassuring in the same way as near-death experiences indicate that there are things we should not be afraid of, and they won't. We, we won't be afraid of them if we approach it in a spiritual, with a spiritual idea. And there's no question. And other things, there are other little things like, for example, birds associated with death that we all know. And I've experienced that, and I, I, I believe in it. But there is no question that there are ideas. Of course, we have the other examples of in, in Buddhism, and this is quite documented. Ideas and examples where uh, the rainbow body was seen on the death of a very uh, eminent Buddhist. And this is a common phenomenon. So they're very familiar with this idea. And the, the, the other example I would quote is a recent book, uh, A Burst of Conscious Light by Andrew Silverman, who talks uh, or mentions uh, uh, in that context about the Turin Shroud and his argument that the Turin Shroud was actually a genuine record of the body of Jesus because it's inexplicable uh, in scientific terms how the fibers on the linen shroud uh, have the imprint that they do. And he argues that it was a burst of light from the body after death uh, that made this impression. And uh, again, if we look at, for example, the Nag Hammadi uh, uh, texts, and we look at some of the texts that were taken out by the church. And here we have this, this kind of fake history, the editing of the narrative by the church, where they, where they had to, other people had to bury the, the stories. But if we look at the, the Coptic uh, Gospel of Thomas, for example, we see that Jesus says that if they ask you where you come from, 
say that you came from the place of light, where light came into being of its own accord. So, also, another example which was very relevant to the context of when I was reflecting on your book, The PK Man, um, we see that uh, Jesus was with, uh, with James and his brother, and they weren't allowed to stay in, in Samaria, and the, the two brothers were called the sons of thunder and they said I, I think they were called the sons of thunder because they had similar powers to owens that they could bring down lightning because they asked should they bring down thunder to destroy it and jesus said no you don't understand and he says uh, in similar places you don't understand who you are or what you are so there there is this idea that we have forgotten who we are so in many of these mystical experiences the sensation is, or in near-death experiences, that the person recognizes who they are, that it's a consciousness of their inner consciousness. There's a resonance between the spiritual light phenomenon and the internal thing that says, oh, that's who I am. And that's where the recognition and the evidence of recognition comes from. So there's a, a huge amount of subjective evidence, and that's the best evidence, uh, recurrence throughout history that we are spiritual beings, that light is a crucial part, that we are in fact light. And I get another person that comes to mind, it was very important, I think, and I was thinking of this when I was thinking about where, where your thinking uh, comes from, and when you talked about your mentor, Arthur M. Young, and I, I looked back at him, and it was very interesting because he came from a very industrial, a very pragmatic basis, with a very scientific basis, and he was obviously very aware of the esoteric world. So, of course, in his reflexive universe idea, he starts off with the idea that everything is photons. Photons are characterized by their freedom, and they descend into matter through various iterations into the atomic structure till they become matter. And at that point, we have, consistent with the great chain of being that exists from medieval times and before, we have the idea of evolution from uh, plants, animals, humans, and back to so back to freedom. So we have a movement in a V-shape from freedom into confinement and release. So he, in that context, I I I, I believe that uh, it, there's something profound in that because he was seeking to unify the physical uh, ideas of evolution and scientific ideas of evolution with the great mystical traditions of evolution. And the reason why I'm here talking to you is because one day I had a, an idea come into my head, again in, in a haiku form, that there's been a failure, a certain failure of spiritual uh, evolution. And I, I began to reflect on what that meant, that so much focus, and, and again, that encouraged or began made me look again at what people had said about these things and spiritual evolution is what every individual has to do and consistent with the the trapping light uh, idea and the trapping light motif is a fear on my part that we are reaching a certain point uh, true in the scientific world that the the possibilities of a scientocracy, a technocracy, are very, very, very real. Now, I have a different view. We can talk again sometime about the end of history, and I don't agree with some of the, the, the other interpretations of what's happening. Uh, 
What I do think is happening is there's a great possibility for the end of liberty. And as a lawyer, uh, I would argue that rights which have evolved over the last thousand years in the common law world, uh, in the Western world in particular, have been taken away like that for pseudo-scientific scientism uh, reasons. And that's very dangerous. So we're actually... At the moment, not threatened by very high technology, but we're threatened by attitudes. And I, I, I would condemn scientists for not actually speaking up about pseudoscience when they see it from administrations, from government. Pseudoscience that can be utilized to take away the liberty of the individual. For example, uh, Arthur C. Clarke explained all these things that were going to happen. He explained satellite communications. He explained nanotechnology. He explained terraforming in the 60s. He explained there was going to be fusion and man and machine. I didn't believe the last bit. I believed everything else, but I didn't believe that people would want to unite with a machine. But it seems to be that people want to do. People want to be uh, cyborgs, like in Star Trek and, and Porel Picard. You remember, he was... He was assimilated. Resistance is futile. Your life will change. Uh, And uh, so it's in that general context about technology, science, scientism, that we have to to really look back at the, the valuable riches across the traditions. And in this context, I, the same as you, and you have expressed this in a number of your talks, that I'm an heir as a member of the human race to all the spiritual traditions. So the we talk about racism, but we're talking about the potential end of the human race. This is what the this is what the intellectuals are saying. If we look at Harari, for example, he's saying there's only one or two generations left of Homo sapiens. So this is not a fanciful idea. The idea that the human has come to its end, we move to a post-human society. So a, my argument is that the failure of spiritual evolution is the thing which will cause that. It's not technology. It's our failure to recognize that we're spiritual individuals. And it requires that we embrace our spirits, evolve. And also, I believe that parapsychology is a part of that picture. That I believe that it's, it is a knowledge base of the spiritual traditions rather than something that should be given off to science in general so that they can exploit and control us more. So here it is why we have to save your soul for the cosmic battle in this sense. We have to, that's why your discourses are very, very important and it's important to see the different dynamics so people can make informed choices. You referred earlier to the Enlightenment. Uh, I think you meant the European Enlightenment of the 18th century, and it's often associated with the rise of modernism and the uh, beginning of the idea that that religion and spiritual traditions are all dark superstitions. It's it's very much the opposite of the way Enlightenment is referred to uh, in Asia. One idea that I think is very, very important is that there has been a consistent attack on spiritual traditions. Now, you talk about cultural appropriation, and I, I studied this in, in, uh, in relation to indigenous people very much in, in legal terms, for example, when they had the red skins and, and the use of crazy horse, for example, was used as a, 
a famous uh, restaurant uh, or nightclub in Paris and you have all these specific legal issues about appropriation and where the boundaries are. But spiritual appropriation is a thing which is going on and it's very, very deliberate. Uh, the choice of or idea of enlightenment represents a struggle between the scientific community over the idea of light uh, and which is the superior light. So another light I have is scientific light. So I argue that scientific light is the, the study of light itself in scientific, scientific terms and an associated metaphor that scientific knowledge is the sole method of illumination. So much of science seems to see this as a zero-sum gain, whereas it has to displace religious, religious illumination. Instead of seeing them as parallel endeavors, which I think they are meant to be, they believe they have to burn or use their, their, their flame to, to take away other competing forces. There's a kind of monopolization. To put themselves in the very position that they claim to attack in the religious systems. So the scientific, the scientific um, or scientocracy in the future will be far more uh, compelling and far more tyrannical than any religious uh, religious institution ever was. I've no doubt about that. And uh, the, it, it will replicate in a far worse way uh, all the things that were done. I'm not in favor of overstrong institutions. I'm very skeptical about institutions. But it's very, very clear. For example, if you look at, there are a lot of scholars looking again at the Enlightenment period. And there's more arguments, for example, that the Enlightenment came out in Europe of, a, of an idea of disputation that was developed in the Catholic traditions. So they were familiar with this process of disputation. It didn't come from necessarily an independent stream of free thinkers. So it came out of a context. And if we look at people like Dawkins and that and people at the other end, the fundamentalist scientists, we see a very, very uh, we see a very, very strong attack. And, and the reason why there's a very, very strong attack is that there is a very strong movement to have a global scientocracy, a technocracy. That's what Wells talked about in the, uh, the open conspiracy and, and his writing. He wanted that. Funny enough, Wells wasn't regarded by other scientists at the time. He, he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't accepted as a scientist in that sense, no matter how good he was as a writer. So he played this argument about the scientists being in control. But to me, uh, that will be a nightmare and the danger is, is, is there. So one of the reasons why I want to make these arguments is because I think it's, it's very, very important that people wake up because time is running out and they should wake up so that they could draw on their spiritual heritage, so they can draw on the heritage of people from different cultures around the world. And when you're talking about your your grandfather in Bialystok, and I remember we 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 drove down there years ago, true true in, in, on the Polish border, um, that really we're one we're one race of people, and we're spiritual people. So the 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 big fight uh, that will follow is the fight for the human spirit, or the, the spirit of the human race. And the opponents in that context are overzealous materialists. I'm, I'm, not, against, I'm not against technological world. I, I taught uh, technology 
early on. I studied technology. Um, I, I, I set up courses in technology. I was using this technology to teach people in the Arctic Circle or to deliver, deliver lectures in the 90s when nobody else was using a kind of little computer with a de delay. So when I, when I made a joke, I'd have to wait 10 seconds to see that they get the joke, for example. Um, so it was out of that studying of the broader principles of, of uh, technology and communications technology. And I would explain or seek to explain general principles like the inevitable convergence of technology and how it evolved. All those things were there. So there's nothing new in many senses, what, except for people's acquiescence in this, uh, in this technological infrastructure. And I, I, you talked to John Lilly, didn't you? You did a few uh, talks with John Lilly. Uh, and I looked back again at some of the, he, he was very, very important. And he talked about the solid state entity and the idea of some kind of bioform in the future that will take over. Now, if we think about that with artificial intelligence or singularity, whatever you want to call it, you, well, you have a cell phone. I don't, I don't have a cell phone, but the a cell phone, you're carrying the cell of a new entity that's going to emerge in the future. You are, you are the host for this great entity which is going to emerge from the confluence and convergence and interaction of technology, which won't have any regard for the uniqueness of humankind because it can't be conscious in the unique way that humans can be. And if you look at some of the greater theorists, they reflect that. It can mimic it, it can act like it, but it's not human consciousness. So it's very, very important. As well, in different religious traditions, there's, there's always efforts to divide the peoples. And the reality is, I'd like to hear a lot more Muslim, Muslim scholars, Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, atheists that are concerned about, come together beyond their religions, over their religions. And people now with their in, in a non-dogmatic way, to look at the idea of the human spirit itself and the need to protect it. And also for scientists to begin to look at circuit breakers on the various technologies that they, they have conceived and to look at counter-active uh, measures to the various technologies. We know that very loads of patents have been given with nanotechnology. It's in various very basic materials that people buy. We don't know the impact that that will have on the environment. Scientists are doing what they usually do. They're driven by commercial forces to release these forces into the environment. And then they will come along in five years time and say, oh, you have to stay at home because all the nanotechnology is running amok and we have the solution for it. And you say, well, well, why, did you, why, why didn't you tell us this at, at the start? We are aware of these dangers. We have to be prophylactic. And we have to be we have to be careful about some of these new technologies. But we could also begin scientists could also begin to look at counteractive measures, anticipating some of the problems. So that even in relation to the you look you like looking at the sky at night. Well, in a few years, the sky is going to be full of lights and necklaces of 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 satellites that are putting up as part of the control mechanism. And it'll become increasingly difficult even to enjoy things that we thought were always available. So when we're locked and confined in our home and you say, oh, well, at least I can look at the sky at night, you see all these things going around which have happened recently. So it's very, very important that we seek balance. I'm not against science. I'm not against technology. I'm in favor of high technology, I'm in favor of proportionate use of technology. But I think we better be careful. And, and there's, there's always 
uh, costs as well as the benefits. We have to consider both. In all these things, people are very, very good at telling you what the benefits are. And you say, well, what are the costs of this? And they're very, very poor. And they're always willing to leave things and describe them as externalities, although these have huge costs. We, so, so it's very, very important. The reason why it's important to look back at some of these things, to think in terms of the mystical traditions, to think in terms of what people were saying, to recapture and regain the beauty of some of these traditions, to look again with open minds, is so we can respond in a more fuller way to the challenges we face, so we can embrace technology, but not have it... I'm, I'm not succumbing to this idea that we have to be... we have to have our brains sucked up into consciousness. And I'm against any philosophy, including people like uh, uh, Chardin. I'm not convinced by Chardin, Terard de Chardin, for example. I, I'm going to have to go back and revisit him, but uh, some of his ideas seem to me inconsistent with other ideas in the tradition. So some of, again, it's a constant dialogue. I'll go back and look at some writers a number of times before I have a final conclusion. But uh, we have to consider the consequence of these, of these philosophies as well. You seem to be suggesting that uh, because of a kind of spiritual darkness, we're uh, in danger of being overwhelmed by the uh, authoritarian, even totalitarian powers of of science and technology. But but there is a paradox there because uh, many spiritual traditions suggest that. Uh, in order to achieve authentic enlightenment, we need to enter into the darkness. And, and some would even say in a Jungian sense, uh, the real issue is that we need to confront our own inner darkness. Yes, and this is a theme. I didn't answer sufficiently your darkness point. I agree with you. It's fundamental. And I, I, I don't dispute that. Exactly. Uh, and of course, Jung was a master of, of that tradition, but it wasn't just Jung, because if we look back on the saints, for example, Saint Anthony, one of the recurrent themes in Western art was the temptations of Saint Anthony, because he was afflicted by demons all the time. Uh, and enlightened people will encounter strange beings because they are there. They're not just in the subconscious. There are forces and beings around us. So. Uh, when I'm talking about light, light, it's it's like a wave that, and you see this in the mystical idea that there is a rise uh, to a, to a point of light and a descent into darkness at all stages. So even at the higher levels, there are different types of darkness. So we don't want the light turned on all the time. There's different types of light. So yes, and you have you have been very very clear about that, and I, I have reflected and looked back on the arguments in this context. For example, Saint Anthony was met by a demon and the demon wanted, it seemed, not to be a demon or to convert and he was delighted. And uh, Saint, so, so, so this is a theme you have with enlightened people. But at a certain stage, they have to deal with the dark side. Jesus has to deal with Satan. God talking to Satan comes up in a number, in a number of contexts and stories. But the point is that the light is able to deal with the darkness if it's if it, it's clear about uh, what it is. But yet darkness is very, very important. I hate that artificial light is taking away natural darkness. Natural darkness is very, very important. Natural darkness is fundamental in a lot of mystical traditions. Going into the dark, going into the cave, 
when your your friend told us about the Kogi and the uh, when we had a dinner in, in Albuquerque and how they used darkness, that was consistent with the Celtic idea. And I enjoyed your talk with Serena uh, very, very much when she explained about going into the uh, the chamber in Ireland. And again, you have that darkness and the light comes from the darkness. They work together. And in fact, if you we, we see this also in relation to anchorites and people that hid themselves away, that and we see it in the Native American tradition, that going into the darkness enables you to encounter the light. And in that context, there's also the other idea of darkness, that there's demons and entities. And Now, now I, I believe that personally, that these entities exist. There are a whole range of entities around us that different people can perceive at different times. And I would, I would argue, or will, I, will, or I would assert uh, that I have perceived uh, certain things like that. Um, and I also believe in the idea of possession, that people can be possessed if they're not sufficiently aware of it again consistent with the idea of van dusen you know or consistent with the idea of the catholic church but take that example even in exorcism for catholics and for protestants one has to confront the demon so in the process of exorcism one has to deal and ask who the demon is in order to get the demon out so this is consistent with looking the danger in the eye it's not ignoring it so the ignoring of the danger of the darkness uh, is not uh, is not uh, available, and of course Jung is, is is the is the best example. And we might also think of Nietzsche, Nietzsche, um, and he's an example of a failure to look at his darkness because he saw the abyss. But in a mystical tradition, the abyss is only a stage on the path. So one encounters great great darknesses, but one surmounts them. And, of course, the greatest darkness before the dawn, etc. And in many ways, people like Nietzsche can go crazy because they misinterpret and they don't spiritually involve. I don't believe he was... I'm not impressed with Nietzsche like some of your guests are in the same way. I, I appreciate various arguments of what he did, but I, I certainly don't, uh, I don't rate him in terms of the, the spiritual evolution. And uh, I think he got some things, he got some things wrong. So, yes, darkness is there, and even with the Enlightenment, and the, an example, if we look in Christian terms, we see this in relation to Judas. Uh, so, the story of Judas and Jesus is a very complex one. It's another story that you, you have to look back on, because there's also a competing story, and competing the Gospel of Judas, where Judas, Judas was the chosen one. This was one of the books that didn't get into the Bible, and that Jesus couldn't have fulfilled his role without the help of Judas. Uh, and then the Pope Benedict wrote an interesting book about, uh, about that, and he mentions this idea then of, of well, well Judas, Judas, of course, had to be enlightened in some form. So at the stage in which he killed himself, he was gone from an enlightened state to a dark state. And this idea, you know, what does that mean? So uh, the point... We do have to engage in darkness, and that's where I found the PK man very, very useful to look at it. I think it's a, it's a, be a fascinating case study to look at it from different, because you're, tr you're trying to say, well, is this a good guy or is he a bad guy or what he's about? And it's very, very difficult to interpret. But I think if you look at, for example, the Apostle uh, James, 
who had the seemed to have the power to pull thunder down, he was willing to use that in the context. He was willing to use that if, if Jesus hadn't rebuked him. So the point being that maybe Owens didn't find the person he was meant to serve in that context with, uh, with guidance. I, I, I wonder as well about P.K. Dick. I see that a lot of people are focusing on his work to argue in favour of computer simulations and all this kind of stuff. I don't believe in the simulation theories. I think this is a part of the, uh, this is part of a kind of agenda which is consistent with a higher level materialist agenda. I think that it's, it's appealing to the computer games generation that have been raised on computer games and Harry Potter, but I don't believe in it. Even if it, it was true, the mystic would argue that if it is a game, there's someone in charge of the game and you can still communicate. Maybe that's who you're communicating with. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't change it. But Philip K. Dick, people, you oh, well, it's simulation. It represents a simulation. I believe that he was a prophet uh, and he was a prophet of the old type and his experience bringing them back to early Christianity where he perceived that still during the Nixon administration we were living under the, the Roman Empire uh, and his his great investigations of ideas of Gnosticism and various theories uh, and his anticipation that he was in a similar persecuted state was probably a, a prediction of the future and that he was probably seeing a various forces around him. But I, I think he was, a very, he was a very mystical individual who in exploring it in the fullest sense uh, wasn't committing himself to any ideas. In fact, as you know, when you look at his, the exegesis of Philip K. Dick, he starts off with one theory and you say, that's convincing. Next page is another theory. And then 10,000 theories later, you're not sure which to believe in. So I wouldn't extract one of his theories to argue, for example, in favour of the idea that we're in a computer simulation. And also, uh, some of the people, one of the things that I'm against is transhumanism. Uh, and the, of course, nobody is going to complain about the use for medical purposes. And these are the ones we'll hear about or enhancements of the body. And we do enhance the body. But that's not what the argument is. The argument is in favour of a relinquishment of our spirit and our consciousness to machine control. And in this, in all these things, I see a, a dialectic or a, a contrast between freedom uh, and control. And there are certain people who need to control things. Uh, and this is also a distinction between mystic, mysticism and magic. The magician wants to control things. The mystic doesn't want to control things. They believe in and that's, I suppose, in the Christian terms, why Jesus says, render one to Caesar. To Caesar. That's a different, what is Caesar's? That's a different dimension. The mystic believes in individual uh, development. The magician, like Prospero in The Tempest, he or she wants to control things. And that idea of magic, in the Harry Potter generation, and the idea of control of political situations is related to magic. It's related to a magical disposition. Now, in my view, magic has gone one direction uh, and mysticism has gone in a different direction. We can see this if we look at Surawardi and the Persian uh, Sufi uh, illuminationists. They talk about orientation with the pole. And in, in, in a lot of Western writing, they think that the Orient 
is a journey to the east. And you can see that in Hermann Hess or in, mod, mod, in recent books. But the Orient is an orientation to the north, to the north as, as Corban has, has made in A Man of Light. It's, it's, it's an or, orientation on a different axis uh, to, to, the, to the, the north star, if you like. The magician goes in, in, in a different direction. The orientation in that direction is seen to be consistent with the divine light magic tradition. The magician, if they are driven by egotistical, uh, egotistical reasons, if they're driven by a desire uh, to control, are going something else, are going in a different direction. Now, of course, if we talk about natural magic, and those areas are shared, maybe shared by both the use of natural forces or natural energies with will to achieve results. But it depends on what the ultimate intention is. So, so, there, so there is one should distinguish between where one is going, the alignment with the divine light or the, uh, the alignment with magic. And this is very important in relation to Renaissance magicians. If we look at uh, Ficino and, and uh, Mirandello and, and Bruno, this was very important to them. They were allied to divine light. And even in that context, they were willing to engage with the dark forces because their ultimate, in their view, their ultimate goal was to serve, uh, to serve divine functions. And another argument is that, well, if all these, if you believe in one, all, uh, all assuming uh, God or divine figure, well, they, these figures must emanate therefrom. And therefore, it's not that these people are inherently dark, it's that they haven't been exposed to the light. So in the Neoplatonic tradition, darkness is merely the absence of light. So the implication of that is that you should really be engaging with these other entities to convert them. But, of course, uh, there's the problem in relation to people who engaging in things that they don't have authority or uh, they don't have sufficient spiritual enlightenment to get engaged with. So if a person engages in magic or black magic, uh, it's a very dangerous, it's a very dangerous path and it's a mistake to engage in those, especially if one is in danger of giving away spiritual sovereignty. A key idea that I've emphasized is the idea of retaining your spiritual sovereignty. If we didn't give our spiritual sovereignty, to an institution, uh, wholeheartedly to religion, to other people, to governments, to states, to whoever, to, 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 to science. If we didn't give our spiritual sovereignty and we could act as independent agents informed for, by the various forces, the world would be a far better place, uh, in my view. We're, it's too easy for us to give away our sovereignty. So darkness is very important. They, they go together. I see the yin yang uh, th there as 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 being important. We, we need we need both uh, of them, and both exist. And there are forces that we would uh, consider as darkness. We can see this in the rhyme of the ancient mariner by uh, Coleridge, where the the ancient mariner has cursed the sea serpents, and then at a certain stage. When he sees that they're God's creatures, the the curse lifts 
uh, and he's they're redeemed through that recognition of the what beingness of the sea serpents. That's that's a key idea in the rhyme of the ancient the ancient mar mariner. And I see a similar phenomenon perhaps in relation to ideas of alien contact and the alien contact movement. The idea that uh, there are other beings out there, we have to engage in them. But in all contexts, we have to be careful because what would you have said if you were representing the uh, Montezuma, for example, and you, are, you had come from Europe before the conquistadores and Montezuma turns to you as as his advisor and says, should we let these 200 people, you know, into Tenochtitlan, for example? And if you were aware of the consequences of that interaction, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let them uh, in. Uh, the same as, I think it was Wilfred Pelletier said that he wonders if there had been a sign that Christopher Columbus met, which said, no trespassers keep out, would he have turned and gone home to, to, to Europe? Um, but uh, so interaction, of course, always must be with discernment and uh, sophisticated. I'm not. I'm not claiming that people that should go out and and contact all strange things or engage. And I've warned about people to be very careful about that. But what they what they do have control over is their own spiritual development. And what they do have access to is a description of a range of physiological manifestations, uh, if you like physiological, and spiritual manifestations of light that fit into a, a history of all traditions that may help them to expand their imagination and ultimately to move towards what has been described as a, a suprasensory domain where the, whereby they escape from the ego, transcend the ego, and begin to see their affinity and their unity with other people with the hope that by identifying the commonality of consciousness that we don't seek to find differences and and we're in a, an era which is very polarized and polarity is important in all these debates but we're super polarized ultimately of course if we think in a non-dual way about lights and darkness as an absence of what, what an interaction between them um, we can reconcile. We can reconcile them. And I, I talked about what I describe as a law of spiritual contrast. And I give this example: you would not have anyone called Alistair Crowley if you didn't have the Plymouth Brethren. He came from a very, very specific form of Christianity that was very Puritan, uh, and as a result, he reacted against it. So I describe it as like the the idea of the pinhole camera when you have light shining from outside as a natural phenomenon through a small gap uh, artists discovered a long time ago that you get an inverted image of the outside uh, light inside and they've used that to to paint they used to paint on it so they they could get great detailed pictures so the inverted image and the original image is the same thing they're not going to look the same when we look at them but it's inverted, and in many ways, Alistair Crowley was the inversion of a very extreme form of uh, Christianity in some way, you know, for some people. Other people would differ. And, uh, so if you make something very, very sharp, other things will appear to contrast very, very sharply. And that's that's the idea of sheer oscuro, and that's why I always liked your 
your setup because your 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 studio is a classic chiaroscuro um, setup where we and a chiaroscuro of course is light uh, and darkness and that was the idea which underpins the great art of Caravaggio in particular. We can see it in other to, uh, forms and the Dutch painters as well. But the idea of contrast was where the power came from. We wouldn't have had, you don't have the power without the darkness to bring the light forward. Uh, so uh, yes, of course we have to em embrace the darkness. We have to look at the darkness, but this uh, darkness as well sometimes is, is equated with heaviness. Uh, and people feel our heart is heavy, etc. Um, and there is another interesting relationship between the the idea of light and masslessness and heaviness and the contrast between them. Uh, and um, we can see this in various religious doctrines as well. So I agree with you. I'm not saying I'm not saying that we're meant to live. In fact, if you look at the fairy traditions. There sometimes there are people who were abducted by the fairies and they were they came back after a while and they said they lived in a place which was just full of light all the time and it, it didn't seem to it was seem to be endless it didn't seem to be particularly nice but that that was what the description was so there could be places which are full of light but it may not be the light we want so artificial light we can have too much of wherever we create light when we have artificial light. We create darkness against it. And intellectually, it's the same thing. When we say that we have the one way forward, we have the scientific view, we create a similar darkness, a spiritual darkness as well. But spiritual, spiritual light or too much of it or too much emphasis on it without accepting one's own darkness can similarly lead to a different type of darkness. So yes, I, I, I agree with the, the implications of, of, of your question. James Tunney, this was an elegant, uh, even delightful exposition, and, and I'm really thrilled that you touched upon, I think, dozens of the previous interviews here on the, the New Thinking Aloud channel. It's been a real joy to uh, share this time with you and to be able to touch uh, uh, on so many different points. It really, uh, even though we're thousands of miles apart, it seems to me that uh, – uh, one of the advantages of the pandemic is I'm now inspired to schedule more time with you uh, so that we can uh, pursue these conversations even further. James, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeff. <clears throat> and I'd just like to say that uh, in our interactions and in our interviews and in our conversations, that the things that you have learned and that come through your work uh, have challenged me to go and find the contours of answers. So uh, I appreciate that dynamism and the dynamic relationship whereby with two interaction, interacting, we begin to create something which is uh, plus from, from the relationship. And I, I certainly, uh, you made me think on issues such as the nature of evil or what we can say about evil and what's not evil and, and, they're subjects that I wasn't prepared to give a trite answer to uh, um, because if I'm telling you what my opinion is, it's not an answer that can work for other people. We have to begin to identify some principles that may work for a range of people to help us 
with a way forward and to have alternative paths for people that don't believe. So I really appreciate your interaction. It's always a, a pleasure uh, to, to talk to you. And I, I want you to understand how uh, important your thinking and your work has been and is in relation to the evolution of whatever answers. And by giving people of diverse perspectives a platform, we can look at the contours of the argument. And arguments don't threaten anybody. And principles and agreement or perceptions don't threaten anybody. People can people can choose in the end. So so thank you very much and say hello to your your, your lovely family and I look forward to talking to you again soon. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.